The Social Security Administration is getting a boost from the Technology Modernization Fund to secure its computer systems. The SSA project is part of a trio of recent TMF awards focused on cyber. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And Justin, give us the details of these latest approvals. Yeah, the TMF made three new investments in mid-February. These are projects for the SSA, uh, the Treasury Department, and the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Let's start with the Social Security Administration Award. That will help accelerate the adoption of multi-factor authentication across its computers. And, of course, that will help reduce the risk of employee credentials being stolen uh, when it comes to an agency that pours out millions and billions of benefits in Social Security dollars, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and the TMF website says there's some pretty significant legacy authentication protocols on internal SSA systems. There's some technical debt there. So this will help really get those computers up to speed and get them on phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication. So that's a big, big one for the SSA. Yes, there's about 30 years of technical debt there. And Treasury Department, what's their big TMF gain? So they're getting $11 million from the TMF to bring the Treasury Foreign Intelligence Network into the cloud. Uh, This network was established back in 2006. It's used to share classified intelligence with other agencies, but it's a locally hosted network that is, according to the TMF, costly to maintain and has suffered service disruptions due to power outages on the local grid. So this will bring the TFIN, as it's called, into a hybrid cloud. And what's interesting about this one is it will make Treasury the first of 18 intelligence agencies to implement a cloud email productivity software solution. So good one there for Treasury. And once again, the dollar values for those awards that went to Treasury and Social Security. So for Social Security, it's $23.3 million for that multi-factor authentication implementation. And then for Treasury, it's $11.1 million for that hybrid cloud project. I can sense a good sharing opportunity here. If Social Security gets two-factor down pat with that 23 million maybe they can loan their solution to or give their solution to the interior department which has also got a desperate need for for two-factor that was the latest gao report there and the agency for global media u.s agency for global media operator of voice of america and many other properties yeah it's getting 6.2 million dollars from the tmf to implement a zero trust architecture across what is of course a global network you've got five news networks uh, across uh, that cover 400 10 million people, a lot of journalists in different parts of the world. And according to to this TMF project description, there's a pretty legacy IT security posture across those journalists and editors who are doing some work in some pretty sketchy areas in in some cases. And so this zero trust project will help uh, the U.S. Agency for Global Media update its aging infrastructure, have the ability to track devices and correlate devices to individuals, and then implement, again, multi-factor authentication, because that's a pretty big part of zero trust. So that's a good, that's a big one for a U.S. Agency for Global Media. It's $6.2 million, but it's a pretty small agency with a pretty big need here for uh, zero trust. And by the way, this is not the first TMF funding to go to zero trust for an agency, is it? Yeah, it's starting to become a bit of a trend. Uh, The U.S. Agency for Global Media is the fifth agency to, uh, or I'm sorry, the sixth agency to get funding from the TMF for Zero Trust. The others are USAID, the Office of Personnel Management, the Education Department, and the General Services Administration. Agencies have until the end of fiscal 2024 to implement a Zero Trust architecture. So obviously, agencies are scrambling to really get to that deadline that's coming up here 
pretty quickly and looking for funding where they can find it. What's interesting is that a lot of these agencies that are getting funding from the TMF are being asked to share lessons back through a federal agency working group so that they're actually sharing some of the lessons that they're getting out of these uh, this extra funding. Yeah, each time an agency figures something out like this, it should be less expensive for the next agency as it cascades down, I would think. There's a learning curve involved. But clearly agencies have figured out what it takes to get TMF money, and there are certain abracadabra words like zero trust, I guess. And just give us the update on TMF in totality. There has been a lot of activity in the past couple of years for that billion-dollar fund, and uh, not only did the money go up, but the number of queries from agencies has really risen too, hasn't it? Yeah, TMF has now invested in a total of 38 projects across 22 agencies. 27 of those projects uh, were made with that $1 billion funding uh, line from the American Rescue Plan a couple of years ago. In addition to that $1 billion, the TMF has received about $225 million through the annual appropriations process. And the investments now total about $650 million. So they're about halfway through that total funding at this point. It'll be interesting to see what the Biden administration requests in the TMF this in this fiscal 2024 budget that's coming out this month. Last year, they requested $300 million. They only got $50 million. Clearly, Congress sees them still working through that billion-dollar American Rescue Plan funding. Well, given that the IT budget, and it's getting harder to detect exactly what is the IT budget agency by agency because the Exhibit 53s are no longer part of the submission process and budgets on the assumption that IT is ingrained in almost everything agencies do. But presuming that $100 billion is correct, maybe Congress is going to ask, well, why do you need another billion? Another sounds like only 1%. But with 100 billion going to IT, you know, can't they put in two-factor authentication somewhere <laughs> in all that money? Yeah, you, you would you would think so. I think I think uh, obviously uh, it, it's interesting the TMF is sometimes used to accelerate projects that agencies say they can't get off the ground for whatever reason through the regular appropriations and and funding request process. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues and whether they can find a way to use their significant annual appropriations, as you say, to to launch some of these big tech projects. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of the I, I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.